welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. I'm Saxon Baird, and as always, I'm with Sam Backer. Today, we are talking about a huge elephant in the room that puts a whole new spin on pretty much like everything we talk about, and that is old music is eating new music. And what exactly does that mean? Old, yeah, the guys, this is old music versus new music. Which is better? Saxon, go. New music sucks. No, just kidding. No, but actually, like, what is actually... No, which is better? Which is better? What? Tell, give the people... <laughs> yeah, old... Everyone have explained the premise of this episode, too. They're like, so you're deciding which is better, old new music or new music? And I'm like, yeah, dude. Yeah. We're going to figure it out. So we're going to get to the bottom the of this shit. the reason why we're trying to get to the bottom so- of this shit is that some data came out earlier this year, some articles that kind of i don't know i feel like didn't make enough headlines or maybe people just didn't really know what to to like they're like why why is that what what's going on they made some headlines okay, but like let's explain though what exactly is going on so the news that came out to give context to what this entire episode is going to be about is that for the first time since mrc data which is like a data analytics music analyzer <laughs> company Basically, they've been tracking streaming music since 2008 and revealed that essentially more people are list- are streaming older music than new music for the first time since they've been doing this in, you know, uh, 22 years or whatever. What they define as new music is anything that's come out in the last 18 months. So in- essentially, music that is older than 18 months takes up a larger percentage of the pie of streaming music than anything that's coming out that's new or like relatively new. Okay. So yeah. So like basically old songs. So anything over 18 months now represents 70% of the U S music market, according to MRC data. And also an interesting stat came out that the 200 most popular new tracks. So music that's come out in the last 18 months regularly accounts for less than 5% of total streams. And the mix of songs that are actually purchased by consumers, that old school, I don't know, I guess MP3, is that is tilting towards older music even more as well. Well, yeah, dude. Of course, the number of tracks that are being purchased on MP3 are tilted towards old music. Like, show me someone who listens to pop music who is purchasing MP3s in this year of our Lord, 2022. Like, That's a great point, <laughs> and that's also like one of the many maybe explanations for like why this is happening but like before we get like too deep into that um i'll just like throw out some other interesting stats that like basically uh 98 of people ages 18 to 49 didn't watch the grammys anymore and like this new trend of or this trend of old music eating new music uh basically by like 2030 catalog music as I said, music older than 18 months would make up over 76% of the market share and current music would weigh in only at 24%. Um, so all the stats that have been thrown out basically come from this Atlantic article that came out a couple of months ago by a guy named Ted Gioa. Apologies if I'm saying that name incorrectly. Um, he also writes a Substack, like everybody does now called the honest broker. And it's kind of a grab bag of music industry analysis and then also just like him talking about new music that he likes to listen to and everything and i guess he was like kind of part of like the he was kind of like a business guy like in the music industry he also like used to broker uh and deal apparently used to broker like major deals with like big companies before he was in the music industry anyways like he was pulling his information from the mrc data that i mentioned earlier and then like music business worldwide like picked it up and so there was a few articles out there and no one really fully knows exactly why this is the case, but there are a lot of theories going around. And obviously, like, we have our own theories as well. So maybe just to kick off, like, now that we got the stats out there, Sam, Sam, what the hell is going so, on? So, like, okay, so this is obviously, like, a fascinating story for us for, for all the reasons. And, and I think it's really interesting because it hits on two kind of uh, themes that we talk a lot about in this podcast overall like one is the ways in which new technologies and new kind of social formations around streaming have the potential to shift things and the other is the ways in which forms of measurement and perspective (laughs) have the ability 
forms of measurement perspective that are tied to specific, often financialized structures within the music industry, within the broader society, have the ability to like shift our perceptions of what is going on in any particular place. And I think this, this, all of this really sits at the intersection of those two things. Yeah, because I think, I think that while this trend is probably happening in some form, it, it gets really complex when you're dealing with these statistics. And once again, when you get into the and when you get into the sort of nitty gritty of these statistics things become a little bit less clear but there definitely there is a trend towards the increase of catalog music being streamed versus like new music being streamed yeah that seems at least true. that seems true but again like let's let's i think it's worthwhile to just break into just a second of like as best as i can tell like how this data is being constructed right yeah so it's there's this easy it, there's it's easy to make an elision i think between the how much music is being counted as streams on the charts to how much music is being consumed in any which way form in actual reality to how much music is mattering to different people around the world. And like, I feel like this basic framework, like old music is killing new music. Like the reason that's interesting is like, if you said like catalog music is increasing in this market and that market and blah, 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 blah. Like that's not that interesting, but there's this broader, like the kids that used to listen to pop music in the sixties when it was the voice of a generation. Now they're listening to their parents' music. What does this mean? Think peace bubble. Right. Right. And so there is, I think, this elision between this fairly dry data within the industry um, that often can be kind of sus, frankly, and yeah. these broader questions about what music means and how that meaning is changing. And I think that like both of those are real and both of those are like, super valid concerns, but like it's worthwhile to like take those separately um, and think about them independently really quickly, right? So the thing is that my understanding of this data um, from, from what I've been able to look into. And the MRC data is like this very like slick report without uh, the ability, um, at least uh, without having like an institutional account of some sort to like really dig into like the sub tabs. A lot of it's counting, like it's not raw streams. It's like album equivalent streaming units, um, which is a Nirvana song, right? Uh, <laughs> <What>? <laughs> no, radio friendly unit shifter. That's the Nirvana song. Yeah. Um, so oh, album yeah. equivalent streaming <laughs> units, um, which is like the, the the complex mechanics by which people pressing play on a variety of different devices is turned into a chart. And if you and if you think about it, like take a step back and think about the good people over at Billboard, the advent of streaming was really like a like a like just a huge like mess just dropped in their laps because you know, let's take a step back even further, right? The billboard charts, which are basically how we decide <laughs> or figure out the central organizing measurement instrument of the music industry and has been for the past 70 years, I'd say since like they, they crushed out Cashbox, whenever that was. Right, originally the, the charts, and this was standard up until well in the 80s, they basically like picked a bunch of record stores, asked them what they sold, and then tried to extrapolate out that data which depending on which record stores you chose, what are the demographics of the customers of those stores, could clearly have radically different datas and give you different senses like what's the number one album in America. This got even more co confusing because, you know, they famously, for instance, in the disco boom, they counted like albums sold but not returns, which allowed various companies, most famously Casablanca Records, to just like juice all their records to number one by kind of force selling them to stores so it looked like they had enormous sales and then just got enormous sets of returns because like no one wanted all of these disco 12 inches eventually i feel like the disco glut did get cleared like those disco 12 inches now the surviving ones in demand so if you just wait long enough your boat will come in um Famously, also, we've talked about this a bunch of times, and, and, and frankly, something maybe we'll do a full episode on is, is sound, the advent of sound scan technology in the, in the early 90s, when for the first time they had anything like real data, and all of a sudden it was like, oh shit, everyone's listening to country music and hip-hop and heavy metal. Uh, is kind of the famous industry story there, right? That, so with barcodes, they for the first time had like kind of semi-accurate tabulations. Now, that's kind of one way of thinking about 
like record sales because it, there's like one or a couple kinds of record sales and they're all physical and you could like you count up tapes and LPs and, and CDs and you could figure out how you make the chart, right? But now streaming happens and it's a freaking mess, right? Think about all the ways that you can listen to a band's music or an artist's music on the internet. You can go to YouTube and watch a music video. You can go to YouTube and watch one of those weird, like, budget, homemade music videos that, like, also exist on YouTube. You can go to Bandcamp. You can go to, like, one of those weird, like, uh, MP3 blogs that still kind of exist. You can go to a weird service from another country. You can go to iTunes. You can buy the single on iTunes. You can go to Spotify on and on and on and on and on, right? And, like, it's like, how do you make, figure out, (laughs) given all of this, what how like what the charts are and so basically they've got these complicated set of equations right that determine we talked about this i think in like episode three (laughs) um that determined that determine the various weight of the various different ways that you can listen or stream music online and paid subs and and paid subscriptions count for more certain things like music videos count for less and so my sense is that if you're looking at old music's killing new music or catalog music is outselling new music you if you a better way to rephrase that is the total album equivalent units that have been allocated (laughs) to catalog music which is music released over 18 months ago are outstripping the total set of radio you know uh record equivalent sales that have been apportioned to new music based on the set of criteria determined by the record industry that's clearly less of a good headline but it does get at some real complexities if you think about like who is listening what what demographics are listening to what kinds of music through what channels and my gut is at least some of this is like a massive And I would love to see like this dug more into, but like a massive, the fact that YouTube, which is the biggest streaming site in the world, counts plays at a much lower level than a paid Spotify subscription, I think is means that as we'll talk about this a little more, as you get kind of generational shifts in streaming, listening, certain segments of the market are going to get undercounted. And now from an economic standpoint, you can say sure, but from a, that social standpoint about music and how new music functions in, in our world and in our lives. Like, I think that, that that kind of undercounting can really, can, can really affect this conversation. Yeah. But like, just to be clear, when you're, you're discussing like how exactly like these metrics are defined, I mean, is, can you, can you extrapolate on that a little bit? Because everything that I'm reading really has to do with like with streaming. Right. And like the example you set about like the record label or the record labels, like sending these like, uh, record stores like a certain amount or whatever like doesn't really work in the age of streaming so like they're not just counting individual streams because what was the whole thing about album oriented unit sale whatever like what how is that different than a stream no so so like the different kinds of streams from different sources are are weighted differently as they figure out the i don't know like fiat album equivalent <laughs> and this is re- this is real fiat money guys <laughs> like Right, right, just right, made right. up as a as a unit of exchange between these different kinds of streaming statistics and streaming sources. Okay, so let's give like a so let's give like a more concrete example, maybe like so so. Can you maybe just extrapolate even more a bit about that? Like, give an actual example of like, what do you mean by different types of streams? Are you talking about like the stream that I listen to on Spotify of a song is like different than a stream that I listen to say like in a, in a 15 second TikTok video or is that like not even counted as a stream? And like, is it different than the YouTube? I mean, the answer is like, yes, I don't know how TikTok is counted. I know that like, if you're a paid subscriber to Spotify, your stream counts for more than unpaid streams. And are you sure that like MRC data is actually like taking that into consideration? I, I mean, I, I think that that, you have to have some sort of of um, exchange rate because these are, I mean, and maybe this is the fundamental thing. These are apples and oranges, right? I don't know if actually, like if you're thinking about how music functions in the world, that watching a video on 
YouTube and listening to a track on Spotify that you have chosen or listening to a track on Spotify from a playlist, like monetarily, those can all be put into to, to kind of convertible units. But in terms of the actual impact of the music, I do think we're talking about apples and oranges here and they're just trying to like, I don't know, make a fruit salad. Like, <laughs> No, but I mean, I think that the, the, the original point that at the top of the show that like catalog music is making up a larger percentage of listens at least on like streaming platforms does seem to be reflected in the fact that if you look at this sort of place playlistification trend that's going on on all these platforms whether it be apple or spotify that a lot of those playlists are made up of quote-unquote catalog music and then the percentage of those playlists that are being updated regularly with new music is actually like a really really small percentage no no i think um, yeah yeah but my, my question is like and this track. is that the fundamental thing is like and maybe we can talk like when we go back we can go to this point right the <laughs> data that is being published that is all this reportage is based on is very vague about what they mean by share and they're very yeah. vague about what they mean by like share of what total times it's pressed someone presses click on a song total songs that go over 15 seconds total amount right. of time spent listening to these things um total payout uh right it looks to me like it's saying it's saying percentage share and then album consumption was there and using the share to turn it into money but the share of total album units would still be determined via that like not counting youtube as much system but they don't say anywhere how these numbers are being generated which just leads me to believe like you need to ask like very clearly like how are these numbers being generated and how could that change the results and like what does that and how does the how they're thinking about numbers being generated reflect like industry ideologies. Yeah. Or like reflect how the music industry is changing and like all, you know, and I, I just will add that, you know, once again, not to throw more data into this, but like there was an, an another interesting stat in some of the information that uh, we looked at for in preparation for this episode that a lot of the streaming services, whether it be like Deezer or Spotify or Apple, like, and looking at their playlists, like a lot of their playlists, like don't get updated very often. And a majority of their playlists are, are made up of catalog music. Now, like how many people are listening to like those, ca those playlists. And then of course, everything else that you just mentioned about like the sort of vagaries of like defining like these streams and like what it means. But like, you know, I just bring up the, the playlist uh, aspect of it because it does reflect at least the headline that like catalog music is at least taking up what seems to be a larger share of new music even if it's just on specifically like streaming platforms and like places you buy mp3s and, and as determined by again like these weighting factors right like um unpaid spotify if if, if i'm reading this data correctly right like unpaid spotify subscriptions which i I'm guessing are more likely to be younger folks because like a boomer is like $10 a month, like whatever. Yeah. Just stop. Please stop playing these ads. Whereas like, like that's a dime dude, like $10 a month. Come on, man. At 15, that's real yeah, money. Sure, sure. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And also like, but I think, I think going back to another, the, the more interesting point is the fact that like, it does like reflect like different trends and not only listenership, but also like the music industry. And I think that like really trying to like, uh, examine, you know, whether how accurate this like these like headlines are or like the the stats around it. Like just trying to like examine like why even in this sort of vague, obscure data sets that we're getting, like why are they coming out like this? And like what does it say about the industry and about listenership? And like, you know, even like what you know, the role of the charts or like the Grammys or like what we consider to be like successful when it comes to music at this yeah. point. Totally, totally, and and I do, and I think I think you, you are right to push back on me there, right? Like it, it is is one thing to say I think that these numbers and the stories that are the stories generated by them are necessarily vague because of like, um, the fact that there is no there there's like there's no neutral observation point on these statistics, and I, I guess that's my that's my the point I'm trying to get to with my doubt of them, right? I'm not saying that they're not capturing real trends and real movement. I'm saying that any way of defining this data 
tilts it in one way or another. And of course, the music industry is tilting it towards what is making us money and what is actually, like, you know, like putting dollars and cents or multiple times, you know, millions of times putting cents <laughs> into our pockets. So like that is how they're defining and structuring this data. And that makes sense. But like, there's just no neutral observation point. And if you're thinking about the meaning of music in society, which I think we're going to get to, you know, towards the end of this episode, um, it, it makes it more complicated. And it means that the, it's just another example of the ways in which the music industry is able to define the way folks are thinking yeah, about how exactly, music exactly. functions. So, so beyond, so beyond the sort of ways in which, uh, be, beyond, beyond the sort of obscurities of, 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 of this data, of this data and how it could possibly like lead us astray. Like what are some like other reasons for, this trending topic and 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 what does it say about the music industry and again i'm like a <laughs> i think we've traded our normal roles for this episode saxon in that i feel like this is me at my 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 maximally cynical <laughs> okay there's a lot of talk and, and i think maybe you've delved into this more than i haven't and you kind of gestured towards it earlier about kind of the playlistification of music right um that because playlists are such an important part of the the streaming economy, it's possible for places like Spotify to push um, push listeners towards specific tracks, often older tracks. I mean, there's a um, I mean, there, there's been some great writing from from Damon Krakowski of Galaxy 500, Damon and Naomi, um, who's got uh, written a lot of, of great stuff. He's got a great Substack about music in the music industry, and kind of talks about how like there's this Galaxy 500 song that was I think like a B side, and is by far their most popular song on Spotify because it sounds more like other music, um, and is shoved on the single. And, and similarly, uh, Pavement, uh, the band Pavement, recently had like one of their songs go think like uh, again like a b-side uh single that's not particularly representative of their sound and was not one of their like quote-unquote big hits um in the 90s as much as <laughs> pavement ever had hits and that, that i think first like got playlisted heavily and then went viral on on tiktok and just like this the ways in which it's possible for these algorithms to point people towards music and i'm sure that that is true <laughs> I really do think that like before digging into that as like the fundamental driver of change in this department, like I think there's two like big underlying conditions that to me probably explain a lot of this, right? And and one is the baby boomers. <laughs> We've said before, and it's kind of like a, maybe like a running joke almost that like the, the modern record industry is almost has been predicated on their ability to get baby boomers to purchase let it bleed by the rolling stones every five to ten years in a new format by my count like <laughs> people have probably bought let it bleed at least three times maybe four so they bought it on vinyl they bought it on cassette tape some of them they all bought it on cd the first time then they bought it either as part of a greatest hits that was like remastered and reissued or as like one of those like blu-ray extra remastered because the second round of remasters because the first round of remaster for cds made them all sound truly terrible and so you know that's four times and now they're all this generation which is still listening to the rolling stones is entirely on spotify the biggest expanding audience for page streaming um in the u.s is i think like 65 and up so all of those streams are coming online. And once again, the record industry is getting people to purchase Let It Bleed, right? Because they're now putting it on playlists and streaming it. And that in some ways, they're paying for it all over again. <laughs> and so that's a big push towards catalog music because like not that many baby boomers are listening to things released in the last 18 months unless you count re like deluxe reissues or like bonus tracks on 50th anniversary stuff so like that's one that's like one big thing the second one and this is my gut that's also happening and i i did some real like poking around to see if i could find much and there isn't that much good data about this yet but my read is that also what you're getting is millennials which is the biggest generation in american society by a pretty long shot are leaving or have left the prime years of pop music listenership, right? 
that millennials are now, I think pretty much all of them are 30 and up. The older, like elder millennials are like either late 30s or in their early 40s. And my sense is that in like the 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 great like generational, like um, the great like life cycle of American pop music listening, that's kind of when people age out of, you know, pop music's 15 to 28 or whatever that, 15 to 25 is that prime demographic. And maybe you hold on for a little bit longer, but millennials are reaching the point where like, they're just going to listen to Ja Rule and Ashanti forever. They're going to listen. I actually going on tour for like a 20 year anniversary thing or something. Yeah. And so per- perfect example. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or they're going to listen to like Britney Spears or they're going to listen to the Backstreet Boys or they're going to listen, you know, music that they loved. That's like the core, like those core memories that are like their tried and true favorites. And they're now going to listen to them for the next, you know, 50 years if the world continues and streaming and the music industry exists. And so I can't. But like why, why? So, so what you're saying though is that is that basically, this like gigantic generation of music listeners is like just no longer. They're kind of like they've kind of like tapered off in like the desire for like new music, and they're kind of set same way that like say the baby boomers are with like their like prime time period of like of music, and like aren't really seeking out new music anymore. The millennials just need to be seeking out new music less. Right to make a major change to the overall balance of the streaming economy. If right. if you if millennials are listening to thirty percent less new music, and the baby boomers are coming online <laughs> in a big way, that could I think account for for potentially account for a lot of of, of these kind of trends. Well, so that's interesting. If I could just go ahead and put a pin on that, like that's interesting. So then the question is then like why hasn't like Gen Z fulfilled like the tapering off of millennials listening to new music and i think that's a really interesting question to propose because i think it has less to do with the fact that like maybe gen z is actually listening to less new music and actually more has to do with the way in which they access and listen to music is changing i mean i think both those are true also they're much smaller they're a significantly smaller cohort of people than the millennials were i mean like the same way generation x what there were fewer people in Generation X than there were of baby boomers. boomers. Um, I mean, this is, this is a problem in like my, my hometown of, of, of uh, New Rochelle where basically they built all these schools for baby boomers. And there were like two decades where they're like, there were less kids. So they closed all of these schools. And then it was like a real problem because all of a sudden there were like a ton of kids again. And they were like, Oh, maybe we shouldn't have converted all those high schools into condos. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So, so it's interesting that like, so it's interesting that these trends that we're discussing today on a podcast are kind of also like in step with demographic trends. We see about like the population, obviously we're very specifically talking about like a Western, you know, United States, Euro, Eurocentric uh, 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 stats here, of course, but you're saying, but they do kind of like fall in step with those trends as well. Yeah. And, and I just want to have like a, a proviso that like, this is like, this is very like theoretical and in some ways, like the, maybe one of the most like more theoretical things I've said on this show in that like, certainly it fits with like the, the listenership of like everyone I know and I know it fits with past listening habits and there's kind of like some apocryphal discussion of this in literature I've been able to find I looked fairly hard and I, and I couldn't find like a hard and fast like you'd want like some sociological analysis of like baby boomer listenership habits of you know a number of new records or new artists in their core rotations over this like 30 year period in comparison with changes in um like millennials and I, I couldn't find that so like <laughs> any sociology students if uh please send it to us <laughs> or do it but no but 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 all this stuff is like, super interesting and like let me see if i can parse this out like you know like on one hand maybe the reason why you can't find that information is because of our reliance on like privatized like streaming platforms which like you know that information is proprietary and obviously there are other ways to obtain that information but like it could be gamed it could be withheld you know it's not like as easily like like obtainable as as you know uh, it's not easily obtainable information necessarily but also i think that there is something that's very accurate to changing music habits and uh, on a generational level and i think i mentioned this in the last episode or maybe some episode like ago but you know 
the de- definition of new music is obviously changing as 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 we've like ex- it kind of hinted at or alluded at in this episode. Mm-hmm. So you know, if I like go to my like weekly playlist that is like generated for me supposedly by an algorithm or somebody in the Spotify offices, like that might be new music which I've never heard, but that music isn't defined as like music that has come out in the last eighteen months. And then it, you know you could also jump to something more contemporary where you could like look at like TikTok and you could see sort of the trend of catalog music. You can jump to TikTok and you can see the trend of like catalog music being refound and popularized, even though it came out like 10, 15 years ago. And I think the example is like when I went to that beach house concert and there was all these very young Gen Z's there. And I was a bit confused. And it's because like their song, like a couple of their songs got big on TikTok and now are like their most played or streamed on Spotify. So that, and that's defined as catalog music, right? And so it's just like it, all of this is just pointing towards different trends that are happening that are like not not just generationally in how we like listen to music, but they're, they're both generationally and also like in how like these generations like listen to music. And also even like how we the thing that we talk about most on this episode or the thing that we talk about a lot about this episode is like how we now access that music and all the different like touch points in which music is in our lives you know like the example i've given like odd nauseum like on the peloton or whatever you know or like whatever you know on tiktok or on like playing a game of Fortnite, etc yeah that's really interesting and, and the beach house example is particularly interesting in terms of like what it can mean for artists so so like when i think about a lot of this i think about this uh book that um the british author simon reynolds published like what 10 12 years ago this book retromania right which kind of was like an analysis of modern culture um, and modern music in particular and kind of not necessarily bemoaning, but like the the argument was that the 90s in particular um, and early 2000s saw this like insane rush of really radical reinvention of musical form and sound. And that starting in the 2000s as kind of like the really like the full catalogs uh to kind of pick the keyword of this episode of recorded sound that had never really previously existed and never been fully accessible really became kind of like a wide open endless storehouse for music listeners that culture moved into this kind of like incredibly postmodern bricolage mode of picking and choosing and recontextualizing already existing sounds and styles rather than the kind of like headlong rush into the future that had like previously categorized what he saw as the cutting edge of musical culture. I had some problems with that book at the time. I, in particular, I thought it was underplaying what I saw as the period of like truly easy, remarkable. Easy. We want to get Simon on here sometime. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I respected the argument in a lot of ways. I thought that, um, this was like in the the heyday of Rich Gang and like the Rich Gang leak, uh, in particular, which was uh, Birdman kind of, but like Young Thug and Rich Homie Quan making just stunningly inventive, gorgeous, future thinking music, and I was just like, I hear you, and certainly like I was at the time like packaging records in like a weird indie rock Warner Bros offshoot for like store credit an hour. Um, and was like in indie rock, I'm like, this is all referential. It's like, what if we make yeah. 80s pop music, but like put more echo on it? Um, yeah. But I'm like, but Future and Young Thug are clearly, they sound like nothing that's ever existed before. So I don't quite know. And like, I think that argument had like a lot of really interesting elements to it, though. And it clearly was not like a, you know, whether or not it was fully music encompassing. And I think that that, that can be applied in, in a lot of ways to, to what's happening with TikTok and what's happening with music listening now, the way that, that you pointed to, Saxon. But the one thing that's interesting is, is in that book, it was very much like new bands recontextualizing these older bands stuff in kind of like um music that was kind of like past the generational horizon, right? So like kids borrowing from 30 year old sounds what's cool about the beach house example that you gave i think is like the way that maybe you know catalog music doesn't need to mean like uh uh everyone doing like 50s rockabilly it can mean like people listening to mid-aughts dream pop from bands that are still around and that now can have these careers that are kind of instead of these like sharp instead of these sharp waves of like relevance and obscurity are like buffeted by like the, the gentle swells of generational preference. 
and like that beach house is like has had a pretty good career and then gets new fans from a different place yeah and that's with, a really interesting model for how music could function in society maybe yeah yeah and i think it is how it's kind of beginning to function in society i think it kind of uh lets some air out of of the concern that that the the atlantic article that kind of frames our entire conversation like began which is like new music new new musicians or like the quote-unquote working musicians should be really worried about this and it's like well maybe but maybe not because it's just maybe it's just like an example of just the shifting sands of the music industry and like listenership but i will say though that like the sort of darker side to it is that there is this sort of you know the 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 fear of the uh, the ever oncoming like monoculture like monster that's like coming which is that like with these playlists you do get a little bit of like i remember you know with these playlists you do get kind of like a little bit of everybody kind of listening to the same thing i mean you give like the example of the pavement or like the galaxy 500 like songs kind of being on playlists and all of a sudden those songs like rocketing to the top of like of the their like their streams of those individual artists and i mean like have you ever like walked into like a, a store say like a levi's or like a mall and all of a sudden you're hearing those pavement songs you're hearing that galaxy 500 song and then it just kind of becomes this thing where you're like and then it becomes this thing where you begin to question like what's what is dictating or like influencing or uh, what i listen to and like even like music that i'm not necessarily listening to but that i'm just like out shopping and this is the music that's being played and it's like really comes down to like these like privatized these it really comes down to these streaming platforms and these playlists are like really making a huge having a huge influence on our listenership and what we listen to or even passively listen to are just like exposed to right and then that continues to go into my other point which is that how we define new music is just completely changing because for like a lot of people that those beach house songs or that pavement song or that galaxy 500 song is like new music to them even if they knew those artists and listened to them and like wow i've never actually heard this like uh this galaxy 500 song i mean i think i just gave the perfect example i i texted you like yesterday i heard a song by the band the fix which i absolutely loved and the fix came out of that era of like late 70s early 80s uh punk post-punk and like i know a lot about that era like was pretty obsessed with it in my early 20s and yet had like never heard this song and then now i did hear that song on nts which is like more of a radio format which is more interesting but it just it just is i think that the idea of like how we access and listen to music is just changing because even if you think about it like think about like 10 20 years ago or like let's say think about like 20 years ago like if you wanted to like dive into the catalog of an artist it either involved uh going to the record store finding that used record and like standing in front of the like record player that's at the record store and like flipping through it right like actually like opening like and like listening to it or it was like a lot of like really slow like downloading of these albums like through either legally or illegally right like and that was how you would dive into the catalog into the catalog of an artist or like an era of like certain kind of music and i mean not to date myself, but yeah, I'm like a, firmly a millennial and like, yeah, like I got into that music that I just mentioned, that sort of UK, like late seventies, early eighties, like punk post-punk by like literally getting a book on it and like writing it down and either like going to my library or like downloading the music or like going to the record store, finding it used, listening to a few tracks, like spending the six ninety nine on it or whatever. That, that's how I dove into the catalog. But now it's like, it's actually like literally service to us on a playlist. Time has no surprise when pleasure found is my resource. Going back to kind of your point about the ways in which, um, you know, that, that these, these uh, listening to music and streaming and the playlistification of stuff, especially in like public places or the, 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 the increasing universe of touch points for this music economy. I mean, I think it does point towards like an interesting dynamic about um, the ways in which our understanding the ways in which streaming fundamentally changes our 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 perspective onto like what 
li- the relationship between listening to music and purchasing music, right? So may, my gut is that, you know, there have been Muzak for many years, but that over in, in the last several years, you have an increasing, um, you know, that, that almost any store you're in is going to be streaming music and that that streaming music is going to be reported in, in these playlists, right? And so in some ways, charts that used to be se- fairly separate are more unified and similarly and i think this is one of the really interesting things is also it means that because people are streaming right it means that where previously the purchase of a song and the listening to a song were separate right you bought dark side of the moon for instance which is you know i think the 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 record that was on the billboard 100 charts for the longest time it was on there for like 12 years or something like 700 weeks um, right, and so the 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 industry counted that as as like a as a as a monetary transaction for the charts when a new teenager bought that record. But they did not count when that same teenager took it to freshman year of college, got high and listened to it fifteen times. Right, all of those plays were in some ways not the point, not the way the industry was thinking about its financial activity. And, you know, it's, it's maybe very obvious to say that in streaming, that's, there is no longer that separation, right? That every time someone listens, if the Spotify, for example, is their primary, Apple Music is their primary way of listening to music, every time they listen to Dark Shot of the Moon, that generates new revenue for the industry and, and in some ways makes the industry focus on those kinds of musical encounters that previously were kind of like, within the home, like beyond the wall of data. And and that to me is really interesting just to think about like how does that change things? Because previously like you bought a record, right? And then, you know, no one cared what you did with it. Many of your records sit <laughs> silent. Some records get played until the grooves wear out um, or like until the CD breaks or whatever. And like it, it just, the industry didn't really care except in that it could maybe generate touring tickets, maybe could generate t-shirt sales, maybe you can generate these ancillary cash flows. And it is interesting to think about like, okay, if you're the record industry and now you're generating money or the streaming industry, now you're generating money from every encounter that someone has with music. How do you think about the relationship between encouraging people to listen to these older kind of music that have maybe already come into their lives versus discovering new music and there is a maybe what you're seeing here also in terms of the old and new music is them realizing like it's easier to get to remind people how much they love the rolling stones than it is to get them to listen to a new band that like as the totality of those music interactions become points of profit for the industry like one of the reasons is like in fact maybe in the past the majority of plays were always catalog plays at some level. Like, but it was just that, you know, for instance, baby boomers were listening on their home stereo systems to CDs they already purchased. I think that's really interesting, Sam. And I think it also kind of just reflects a little bit of what I was trying to say earlier in the sense that how we understand what is new music and what is catalog music um, is perhaps changing. And like the way it was like defined Mm -hmm. 30, 40 years ago, and then like the way that people then listen to it and engaged with it is just like different than it is now, I would say. And like, and like, yeah. And, and maybe again, to go back to that to the data point before we kind of move on to the, the, the last little piece of this, this episode is, is like thinking about how the, the way that the music industry has organized this data, right? The way that it's thinking about counting plays, the way that it's thinking about counting the money that's coming in then creates the kind of preconditions for new kinds of actions or activity that well, yeah and, that, and so that that's really interesting and kind of what i want to bring up next which i think really i think that these points like segue really well into into these this this, this next topic and catalog music can kind of stand on its own at this point like like i i read i, I like I, and what i mean and what i mean by that is that there was an interesting rolling stone article about this very subject in which we're discussing and it was proposed in the article this sort of like thought experiment which is if you took all of catalog music and you put it into a basket you would still get a pretty decent return on it right put a pin in that right so so like you would still get a decent return on it right if you just like completely put all the catalog music in its own in its own fucking basket away from like any kind of like connection to like uh, the operations around trying to find new artists through like a and r 
right? So the so one thing that the Rolling Stone uh, article was, was suggesting is like, what if like say the Universal separated the profits just spun off cat yeah. just spun off catalog spun off catalog so basically separating the profits that they make from catalog with like all their their new endeavors which is like artist development and a and r and everything like that and kind of forced a and r in a sense to become sustainable on its own which i found like really interesting because a lot of the a lot of the worries in like the few articles that were written about this was like this concern about like major labels are less willing to like uh take a risk there's like like fear of copyright lawsuits you know the and like how like oh record labels are like losing interest in new music and emerging performers and all this stuff like that and i mean i don't know if that's true or not but it does bring up this interesting thing that if we are thinking about systematic changes in how the music industry works like what do you think sam about the idea of a huge major label like literally spinning off its catalog letting that just continue to churn along make profits and sell to the baby boomers until they're all gone and then having making and then the new music is a completely separate revenue stream that kind of has to sustain itself i was like i was super fascinated by this like by this by this idea i mean you've just invented the idea for hypnosis song funds (laughs) exactly exactly (laughs) which is very much what these kind of um music uh catalog purchasing companies are are betting on yeah no no i think that's a really great point is that and then and and, you know once again like i probably reiterated this point too many times on, on this podcast but but all these song funds that we've discussed in the past and like about hypnosis and everything, like my whole theory about it, it basically kind of just being like a Ponzi scheme, sort of pump and dump uh, in reading and researching this uh, for this episode. I discovered that hypnosis has zero employees, which I thought was like, Oh, there you go. That's exactly <laughs> like how, how, like that's my point. Exactly. They just, it all the sort of promotion to make sure that like, you know, Bob Dylan's catalog, like makes back, make backs supposedly like uh, how can they have zero employees supposedly makes back all the money in which like that they spent on it is like uh is 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 turned over to third parties in which they hire they they literally have zero full-time employees gotta love it i mean so but but back to anyways but here but the point is is that right it's sustainable right like as of right now, I mean, like we we could talk about like you know obviously the hypnosis thing and like the the sort of pump and dump and the inflation of these catalogs or not inflation, however whatever side you fall on is debatable. But it, it does it does suggest that like you know the amount of money everything we're saying in this episode and what we just when I just explained is that these ca- this catalog music is sustainable and it could just continue to generate profits with like very little effort, whether it be from hypnosis song fund or whether it be from Universal. I mean, that's some of that's probably true. I think that's probably true. My gut, though, and I could be wrong here, clearly, is that a lot of this is going to come down to the way that music is fundamentally changing. And I think about TikTok a lot when I think about the ways that music is fundamentally changing because I think I think it marks one of the biggest, along with streaming, like one of the biggest kind of turning points that I've seen um since i've really, really been paying attention to the music industry in my in my life and, and in some ways because it there's been a long-term process of kind of blurring the lines between a recording artist and a social media personality and an actor and you know in some ways we're going back to the like old school hollywood version where like you have to be like singing kid and dancing and right and, but you kind of have to do all of that and that tiktok is as a as a hit factory or people who are like micro brand managers influencers and that that music is is a part of this larger conglomerate of like clout basically like social media attention capital um that music is critical part of but is is not enough to do by by itself and that my gut is that Right now, this is still kind of the Wild West, right? You still have, like, the dude drinking cranberry juice and blasting Fleetwood Mac, and, like, that's enough to generate catalog music hits. But as this space gets increasingly organized and as you and increasingly likely systematized, whether that's through the algorithms, whether that's through the various kind of uh, influencer networks, whether that's through the, the, the kind of what I assume are like managerial networks to organize the various influencers. Um, Things are still going to happen randomly, but a lot of people are going to have like a a finger in the pie of making a viral hit. And then clearly they already do. We know that about like dance music hit or like uh, dance hits and stuff. And so 
yeah, this is your classic. This is your classic argument about like, okay, yeah, this is a really exciting space right now, but like, wait until like the majors like start like like poking around. Well, no, it's not just that, but I, I, I guess my, my I mean, yes, <laughs> but also yeah. <laughs> like, yes, <laughs> um, yeah. no, 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 but but also just like I, I wonder whether you could have a catalog music company as music listening is increasingly defined by these spaces, and have a catalog music company just be like hands off the IP will run itself and whether those catalog music companies get in some ways get their lunch eaten or maybe not lunch eaten but underperform in relationship to music companies where they're actively managing their catalogs in the social media space and to actively manage your catalogs in the social media space you need to be engaging with current musical trends and then you're just a normal record label again at some level maybe you're a normal record label that just is like about placing catalog hits but then you're 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 engaged with new artists um and i i don't see a way a way around that really in, in the long term yeah yeah and 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 also let's be real if you look at the history of these things like these companies aren't really interested in changing things that are working just fine until like they are like at an oh shit we have to moment and so like why would they do that essentially and and again maybe to, to close things out a little bit right is, is, is if we think about this balance between old and new music and the generational dynamics of it, just like another like thought experiment, generational dynamic that I want to throw in the pot and see, see what you think about, Saxon, is, is, is something that I've been thinking about ever since we, we did an episode about MTV, I don't know, eight months ago, something like that. And basically what we realized as we were trying to un- unpack the history of MTV is the ways in which right before MTV hit, the music industry really was struggling and that... Uh, uh, a mixture of a kind of new generation of artists and the kind of attention dynamics surrounding MTV created a moment where the music industry could effectively capitalize and produce a new cohort of megastars. Madonna, Prince, Michael Jackson, Bruce Springsteen, Mach 2, like folks that they're, they're still really like, like a lot of paychecks are riding onto this present day. And I do wonder whether to add on top of, of this conversation about like different musical habits and, and different kind of like t- almost like time horizons for musical listening, whether there's also something about like that, that, that these new, that these spheres of music and, and that these new changing streaming infrastructures and, and uh, social media infrastructures are still fairly new. Um, and whether we just haven't quite had the generation of musicians who are able to connect the new technologies to the fan bases to kind of create the massive wave of attention that allows them to be kind of musical standard bearers and move the kinds of numbers of like, quote unquote, you know, record equivalent units that the music industry has been used to moving in the past. And and that I think it's like, the demand for music, and clearly, as we've seen, the demand for like new music, um, isn't isn't static. It, it it's it changes depending on like what the industry is providing. And and I do wonder whether you could get a new set of like Cardi B is like a first step. Doja Cat is maybe a first step. Olivia Rodrigo is like, and she's kind of Disney. She's like not 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 as fitting. Um, but like that there's been a gap of like fully post-streaming, post-TikTok superstars, but that doesn't mean that things won't click into alignment and you get them. And a couple of truly massive stars that are fully within this new paradigm could shift listening habits again. It's happened before. Um, and I see no reason why it couldn't happen again. No, yeah, I think I think that's a great point, and and I guess I guess it really is just kind of a watch this space sort of sort of question, right? Because I mean, I, I I completely agree that that could happen, and it's like it's not like we don't get massive major stars who are able to sort of in the moment succeed in a number of different like musical touch points and like you know and the culture. It's just that maybe the culture is like moving more rapidly, you know, where and and so like, you know, I think about Drake and it's like, I mean, I don't know about Drake's popularity on, say, like TikTok, but like I'm assuming it's not what it was when he was at his like peak. Is he still his peak? I don't know. You know what I mean? But the point, but the, the, the point being is that like the technologies and the mm-hmm. way that we listen and even the formats have just changed like so dramatically. And like since Drake has been on his like run that 
uh and it, it happened in a pretty like short amount of time at least compared historically to the, the way in which like we listen to music and the formatting changes like have happened in the past and so i think maybe we just see these stars that are at that level like a drake size level but it, they just maybe their lasting power isn't as long as say like madonna or springsteen or michael jackson was yeah i mean i also wonder about like just thinking about like what a new generation of stars would look like and whether you know just to bring this full circle very at the very end is like whether these kind of statistics that we've been talking about today could even capture like if you had and again i point to like uh <laughs> like Doja Cat <laughs> because I think she's the first artist who I'm like not the biggest fan of her music but a big fan of her TikToks for me personally right like and I'm like oh I'm a fan of your artistic persona or per- public persona or like commercialized persona but the music is only part of that and that's actually not my favorite part of what's going on here um and so should like streaming equivalent units even be the the proper metric to like uh to try to account for the overall artistic success of someone who is doing like social media stuff touring sales like have we decentered not just like record buying but like streaming as part of this new kind of star that seems like the kind of star that would come out of this environment to me yeah i uh i completely think that i think that's a really great point and it brings me to a quick lightning round to wrap this up two questions okay one is this trend just because new music sucks yes (laughs) okay second question is this trend happening because it's difficult to find new music because it just feels like there's so much of it because it's so easy to access so say like in the 80s we had the radio and the record store now we have those outlets on top of tiktok spotify playlist Bandcamp, nts etc 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 that people are just maybe like a little overwhelmed yes word good Thank you for listening. We'll tie a bow <laughs> <Okay>. on this. <laughs> that's a, such a good I point, agree. though. No, that's such a good point, though, because yeah. there is, like, building off that, that, that what I was just saying about superstars. It's like, uh, one of the things I think that, that part of the essential pleasure of pop music is sharing it with a huge audience. And given how much of things there are, it is possible that, like, it's harder to amass these huge audiences. And then it's harder then you would have less of that that social aspect to drive you towards new music consumption damn sex yeah. you figured it out man no so what's interesting is that like about like fucking i don't know eight years ago i worked for this asshole and i did a lot of like research about new technologies and emerging trends and various like businesses and stuff like that and the one thing that was always being brought up was attention fatigue and there was like a huge worry in like 2015 or something 14 about like attention fatigue and i mean like while that hasn't necessarily like come to roost fully I think that like in some ways you can apply it to some things where it's like the effort, the the amount of music, the amount of ways in which I can access new music, right? And find new music and the amount of ways that are are pushing towards me to try to find that new music, right? Like here's this, here's that, you know, that's being pushed out at me. And then, then, then coupled with my effort to actually like go through all this new music is like tiring and maybe I'm just getting older, right? But it's like it's so easy, so yes. easily serviced to us now. Yes, I am. But like, it's so easily serviced to us now that it's like we have these playlists, we have TikTok. It's like music, new music, quote unquote, whether it's catalog music or new music or whatever music we haven't heard. That's the way I'll put it. It's just so easily serviced to us these ways that it's like, why? Why? I think the the real question is why would I put forth the effort to go and try and find new music? Now, obviously, like you and I as like fucking whatever music obsessed nerds like don't need to have that question answered but for like maybe the more slightly even slightly casual more casual like music listener like why just listen to their like discover weekly or whatever yeah also i mean i do think again just thinking about like the emergent pop the emergent properties of mass listenership right they do that madonna or the beatles meant differently because everyone was listening to them together and that if you don't if you're not able to build that snowball, um, it, it, the music will mean differently. And maybe yeah. you're looking towards songs that do have some of that cachet, much of which will be catalog because they existed under previous media ecosystems. Everyone knows I want it that away. So it feels like that sense of everyone knows this song feeling that you want out of out of music. So you heard it here first. Everybody go listen to the new Charlie XCX so we could all listen to it together so we can uh, it can all mean the same thing to all of us. Uh, you've been listening to Money for Nothing. 
please get in contact with us at money for nothing podcast at gmail please follow us at m for n podcast on twitter please please rate and review us music by bird language we'll see you in a couple weeks thanks for listening bye